Tracy McGrady joins us on Sports Byline. He was a guard forward in the NBA for 15 seasons and was a seven-time All-Star, and he led the NBA in scoring twice. He was drafted in the first round by Toronto and was one of the toughest guys to cover because of his versatility. He was a true triple threat with almost 20 points a game average, over 5,000 rebounds and 4,000 assists in his career, and his career was recognized and rewarded with his induction into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame induction. Tracy, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about growing up in your neighborhood in Florida and your childhood roots in basketball. So I grew up in Central Florida, uh, which is dead center in between Orlando and Tampa. Uh, It's called Arbondale, Florida. Uh, My county is the biggest county in Florida. It's called Polk County. And we have a lot of neighboring cities. Towns are not that the city's not that big. Um, Pretty, pretty simple childhood. Um, You know, grew up with my mom, my grandmother, uh, who got me involved in sports. Baseball was my first love. I started that at five years old and still love that to this day. Basketball wasn't always my favorite. Uh, I, I have a very big family. Uh, a lot of cousins used to go to the basketball park and play, and I just tag along just to be with my friends and, and family and watch. Uh, until one day I got bullied into playing basketball from my cousins <laughs> and realized I was pretty good at this. <laughs> and uh, just played city league sports, whether it's baseball, football, or basketball, whatever season of sport it was, I played every single year. Um Grew up in a structured um, environment within my home, which I had to be because the neighborhood I grew up in was one of the biggest drug holes in Central Florida. And um, I, I saw it, you know, every single day, whether I'm passing, you know, someone that is on drugs, whether I'm seeing it, uh, a sale going on, I'm hearing gunshots. Like I grew up in, in that type of environment and, I, I definitely needed to have a structure environment within my home if I wanted to make it out of that situation. So thank God to my mom and my grandmother that raised me right and kept me out of the streets and kept me involved into those sports. And um, that that was my childhood. It was just a, a bunch of, you know, playing sports and staying out of the way of, you know, the the drugs and the, the bad people that was involved in the streets. One of the things I've heard time and time again, Tracy, when I've talked to players from the inner city, any major inner city, is that when an athlete starts to you know f- come into his own, that that element in the community really protects becomes them. protect exactly protects yeah. them that way. Was it that way for you? It was the same way. So it, it, to enter my neighborhood, it was one way in and one way one way out. And the main street is where all the drugs and the, the drug sales and all that stuff took place. And some days, depending on which way I come home, I have to come down that main street, right? And if I did get caught <clears throat> on the main street and if I am, I stop and have conversation or, or, or spend some time on that street, I was definitely being approached and making sure that I got off the block. Right, that that was the protection. They make sure I didn't st- hang around too long, but otherwise it was just me walking home and getting out of the way. But if I if uh, was a guy that was 
standing on the corner and, and talking to some guys that were out there, best believe some of the OGs of what we call them make sure that, you know, they approached me and got me off of that block and make sure I don't come back on, on there again. So, yeah, I was well protected by my neighborhood. I want to approach you about something else I've always heard, uh, particularly in black families, and that is the power and the strength of black women. You mentioned about your mother and your grandmother. I've heard that story time and time again. Tell me a little bit about that aspect of black women in, in families like that. Yeah, so my grandmother, man, it was, it was just a strong black woman and, you know, just gave me structure and and really taught me a lot. And one of the things that I learned from my grandmother that, you know, helped me along the way and, and, and who I am today is really having patience and and to understand that a lot of the stuff that people think they're missing out on, but the parties and hanging with their friends and getting into certain things is really not that important. And it was just spending time with your loved ones. And that's what I got from my grandmother. And I used to wake up five o'clock in the morning and be out on a lake in a boat with just my grandmother and me from six o'clock in the morning to six in the evening while my friends are out playing or doing whatever they did, you know, during that day, I'm spending time with my grandmother fishing. And that was, it was so peaceful and I, I enjoyed it so much, you know, um, just spending time. And it was sometimes, you know, we'll be out there for 12 hours and maybe catch five or six fish like it, it wasn't a lot but i think just being out there and 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 having conversations with my nana and and learning from her learning how to fish you know and and as a kid to to see that you know that court goes down it's like christmas you know they're like oh i got a catch <laughs> that, that just did something to me as a kid to just stare at this court and I, like I'm having some uh, magical, you know, power to have this court just go down with my mind. Please go down, go down. Oh, the fish is about to grab it. And then when it goes down, it's just like Christmas, you know, at that time. So uh, a hardworking woman, you know, she was a custodian at my my elementary school. My mom worked at Disney. Um, so I, I was surrounded by two hardworking women that, you know, kept me in check and made sure I did everything I was supposed to do. Um, and they had a lot to do with my success it was really, you know, the circumstances that I was, you know, surrounded by, make sure I stayed out of that. So just to have those strong black women in my life and, and have that structure and make sure they stayed on top of me was so valuable. And my dad as well. My dad didn't play the radio. My dad worked for a fertilizer plant and he was just, you know, a, a guy that was just firm and didn't take any crap from his kids, make sure that he stayed on top of me and in my, you know, my grades and stuff like that. You know, I find it very interesting. You had a Hall of Fame career, but you were relatively unknown as a player coming out of Florida in basketball. And it was at the Adidas camp that you showed your true basketball talents. What was it that brought those talents out? Well, I think it's just the opportunity, you know, and we all we all want opportunity, but it's, you know, you got to ask yourself when those those doors of opportunity open, are you ready? Are you ready for that challenge? Because it is a challenge for you and it's something that, you know, you haven't endured yet. And for me, I've always felt like I was a talented kid when it 
in, in, involved in sports, whether it's baseball, football, or basketball. Um, so my junior year, I was considered locally the best player in my area. Outside of that, no one knew who I was. Like you said, I was unknown. So the fact that we had guys in, you know, around our, our cities that were extremely talented that came before me and those guys never left and did anything or went to anything of this magnitude that I got invited to the Adidas camp to participate against the elite high school guys and gain this type of exposure. This was the opportunity for me, you know, to uh, do something with this and shed light back, you know, to my hometown with guys that didn't get this break. So for me, it was much bigger than just making a name for myself. It is opening doors for the guys that's coming uh, behind me and, and getting that opportunity. And sure enough, you know, the Amari Stoudemire's who, who came out of, you know, my hometown and some of the other guys that got a chance to play in the NBA as well. It's interesting. You once said, Tracy, nobody had a clue who Tracy McGrady was. Sonny Vaccaro gave me that platform, and I played against the best players in the world at that time. I left that camp the number one player in the nation, 175 to number one. How did that factor into your decision to bypass college basketball and jump directly into the NBA? Well, what really factored in is two guys that did it the previous year. You're talking about uh, Kobe a year before me and then Kevin Garnett before Kobe. Uh, so two guys who was, uh, I'd say, two guys that were successful in their jump um, gave me confidence that I can do it, being that I was the number one player in the country. Uh, I was a six, I was six eight, lanky guy, had extreme uh, quickness, uh, can shoot, athleticism was off the charts. I felt like I was confident enough to, to be able to do that. And then when you hear scouts talk about, you know, you have the, the skill set to make that jump, I mean, your confidence just goes through the roof. So I believed in my ability and I uh, made the right decision that I felt. Tracy, you were picked with the ninth pick in the draft, and your rookie year wasn't an easy one. You described it as a year of hell. What made it so? Well, I think when you have a a lot of – you know, folks don't understand that president, GM, coach, like management and coaching staff are always not on the same page. You can have a, a president and GM that wants you, but a coach necessarily doesn't buy into that. And that's, that was the case with me. Isaiah Thomas uh, loved my game. There's reason why I was drafted to Toronto, but Darrell Walker wasn't a fan. And he gave me hell. There was no structure to an 18 year old on how to be a professional, what I have to do to get on the court to, to earn minutes. It was, it was none of that. It was just a, a clashing of an 18 year old and his head coach. Uh, it was no teaching. And I think the organization recognized that Butch Carter, who was the assistant coach at the time, he ended up taking over when Darrell Walker got fired, gave me some structure, taught me the game of basketball and helped me understand what I needed to do in order to get consistent minutes. And I did just that. It became, you know, um, it became easier for me to understand and not having to figure things out on my own when I'm entering 
a grown man's league and no one is, is really leading me. Um, but Butch Carter did a, a fabulous job of really leading me and, and helping me understand what I needed to do in terms of being a professional and to gain minutes to, to get on the basketball floor. Tracy, another thing that certainly helped your transition into the NBA was when the Raptors drafted your distant cousin, Vince Carter, uh, and you two were really inseparable. Matter of fact, your teammate, D. Brown, once said, they say they're cousins, but Siamese twins are, twins are more like it. <laughs> How did that help you? <laughs> oh, man, having Vince there, was, it was, uh, that, that just gave me life. Uh, you know, I had something to do with his draft process. Um, and just the relationship that we had, D. Brown's right. We were just inseparable. We lived in the same building. Uh, we did everything together, and uh, just you know, two Florida boys sticking together. But I think uh, what really helped me is Vince. I knew coming out of college, he was going to be a guy that flourished in the NBA because he had just that type of flair, his athleticism, and, and what he was able to bring his rookie year, and to sit behind and witness that. Because I knew one day I was going to be in that role, but to sit and watch him and how he handled that uh, really was valuable for me moving forward in my career. When once I get started, uh, there's a lot that I learned, you know, from from being around Vince and 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 watching him become a a professional and a star at such a uh, young age. Tracy, you know as well as I do, when you go back home, and that's what you did when you became a free agent and signed with Orlando, that's a two-edged sword. People know you, they have expectations of you, and it's another stress factor uh, on an athlete. How did you approach that? I had a lot of pressure on me during free agency that I don't think a lot of people, anyone, really realize. Um Staying with Vince in, in, in Toronto, because if I would have stayed, there's no doubt. I, I thought we would have been a title contending team. But, I mean, to, to have the opportunity and go and play in Orlando, which I grew up 30 miles, you know, from, and I used to pass the arena almost every freaking summer, you know, going to play ball in Orlando. And I used to tell my mom and my grandmother, like, I was, that's where I want to play one day. I'm, I'm going to end up playing here. So with all these teams recruiting me when I became a free agency in 2000, they were going up against a place where I just, my mind, everything was just set on going to play for Orlando Magic. You know, whether that was leaving Vince, um, whether Pat Riley is, you know, flying me to Miami, rolling out the red carpet, Chicago Bulls rolling out the red carpet. Like, my mind was fixated on playing for the Orlando Magic. And, you know, it was, it was um, even being recruited, you know, the, but behind Tim Duncan, Grant Hill, I was like the third recruit. It didn't matter to me because Orlando is where I wanted to be. And, of course, you know, Grant Hill not being healthy for the four years that I was there was devastating, 
you know, for not only for me, but for him and the organization because of what we could have accomplished together. You know, you take a look at that season, that season, that first season when you were in Orlando, you win the scoring title in the NBA. I look at the 32.1 points, six and a half rebounds and five and a half assists per game. And I think back to watching you during that season. There was something about that season that made me think that it was it wasn't easy, but it was something that you felt natural in. Am I correct in that observation, Tracy? Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. I think that season is when I felt like everything had came together for me in terms of my game. Like I, I figured it out. I put it together. And, you know, I, I just knew scoring was, was, was pretty easy um, because of the work that I put in and, and some of the things that I worked on, I've been working on up until that point, it just clicked. And, you know, there were some games or a lot of games where I, I would have 20 points by halftime. And that was most nights because I just knew how to score. Um, I didn't waste a lot of dribbles and, and scoring the ball. I just knew how to create space. Uh, and, and I had to do that because, again, I don't have Grant Hill with me. And I have a young Mike Miller <laughs> that's with me who's, you know, my uh, who's my partner at the time. Um, and it, we just didn't have a talented team like that. So I, I had to really step my game up and take it to another level like, quick as possible so we can be competitive in the East. We only have a couple minutes before we have to break. Is there a particular moment in that scoring championship season that you'll never, ever forget? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't have a particular moment. I no. I, I do not. Well, let me ask you, let me tell you why I'm asking the question. I have always found with proficient championship athletes like yourself that there is something that all of a sudden happens to them that they know they'll never forget. It's kind of engraved in their mind. So that was the angle that I was approaching the question with with you. No, what I, I mean, is what I was talking about earlier, um, I just, that season, I just figured it out. You know, and just going back to because I led the league in scoring, um, just going back to like each half, I, I was approaching 20 points. Well, I would have 20 or some, you know, nights I would have 30 points and a half. It was just that type of season where I just felt like I was efficient. Everything was, I was clicking on all cylinders. You know, you have stretches. I mean, we played 82 games, so you can have stretches like that. But to, to be on that type of high for 82 games for the whole season is how I felt. When guys say, you know, they had a stretch, a string of, you know, 10 games, I had a whole season of feeling that way <laughs> in 2003. It's always interesting because it is a team sport, and invariably I've had other sports like in football. Someone tell me, well, you know, I'm effective because the tight end on the other side did this or did that. What about for you? Your success, while it was an individual success, it also was probably brought about by the help of somebody else on your squad. Well, I think if you look at my squad, we wasn't the most talented. We wasn't the most athletic squad. I had great shooting. Uh, I had smart basketball players around me. 
and we had a leader in Darrell Armstrong that refuses to play slow and quit. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he, was, he just brought the energy every single day, uh, like the Pat Garrity's, you know, the Michael Doliak. Uh, Monty Williams, like I had a great group of guys. Like I said, we wasn't the most talented, but I played with a smart group of guys. In essence, you know, that helped me become who I was. They allowed me to become who I was as a basketball player and, and sacrificing their games. And, you know, being able to make the playoffs with what we had, I think we accomplished a lot there in Orlando because we didn't have, you know, uh, a max player in, in Grant Hill who didn't play with us. After Orlando, you were traded to Houston, and you said you were happy with the situation. You expressed excitement over the prospect of playing alongside the Rocket All-Star Center, Yao Ming. He was very interesting. Because he was from China, I don't know that people really got a good feel for him. Give me a teammate's feel for Yao Ming. Well, Yao was, um, I mean, for starters, the guy worked his butt off. You know, he was he was a hard worker every day. Uh, he came to work uh, and, and put in extra work, whether it's practice practice days, whether it's game days. Like Yao, put in a whole lot of work. Um, very skilled, very smart basketball player. Extremely competitive. Like he used to be, he used to get pissed off, you know, and and, and losses or when he didn't play play well. Yeah, I would show his frustration and, and, and show that he really cared about the game. Um, just a, a great human, very smart, though. Um, that's, you know, just one of the, the best teammates you can have, understanding guy. And, you know, if you, if you know anything about the pressures of, you know, Yao having on his shoulders, I, I think, you know, if you knew him, you, you didn't see that it – affected him in any kind of way but man when we went to the china games in 2004 uh with the rockets we played sacramento there it was my first time of being in china with yao and just seeing you know how his people just you know gravitate towards him and the love and the support that they show him it was it was incredible to watch but all in all man just to to know that he had those type of pressures on him, he never showed an ounce of affecting him at all. One of the things that fascinated me about him, and I wondered about this, and it's good to talk to you uh, about him, because as you know, communication is very key in almost anything you do in life, but particularly in a basketball sense, particularly when it's a team sport as well. And not being uh, from anywhere but China, how hard was it for him to, to acclimate himself to communicating in a team sport? See, for when I got to Yao um, in 2004, he had already been in the league, I think, two or three years. So playing against him when I was in Orlando, I was wondering, did this, how, does this guy speak English? Because I used to see a translator with him all the time and even talking to some of his teammates, you know, was saying that he had a translator. But when I got to him, Yao spoke great English. He was um, he he understood all the conversation and everything that you know we talked about. He was engaged. He had a great sense of humor. I didn't see the disadvantage in the 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 language of the communication 
with us versus yeah I, I didn't see that i've never witnessed that so maybe that was prior to me but while, when while i was his teammate i never experienced that yeah i heard uh, in the early going of his career it was difficult for him at times so it's nice to get that clarification on him with him on that team and being the major focus of the offense uh, you had some injuries when you were at Houston uh, and you temporarily became the team's second scoring option that takes a lot of understanding of oneself to be able to do that I've had talk talks with Andre Iguodala who when he was at Denver of course you know he was a main man there but when he came to the Warriors he almost had to take another uh, another position another persona with the way he played his game how was it for you Tracy well, when I signed with Houston Rockets, Jeff Van Gundy was the coach. And Jeff Van Gundy told me that I'm coming off of leading the NBA and scoring two years in a row. I signed with Houston, and that's one of the things Jeff told me. He's like, well, you're not going to lead the league in scoring, you know, because we got to get big fella the ball. So we played inside out. It was an adjustment at first. Um, and, and we didn't have the right personnel around the two of us. So it was really trying to figure it out, playing with that guy for the first time in my career that demanded the ball, his presence on the offensive end and the low block, and me having to try to figure out where my spots are playing with this guy. But halfway through that season, it really wasn't working. So I had to take it upon myself to just really be more aggressive and go back to playing like I previously played when I was with the Magic. And, you know, to get Yao involved, but I, I had to, to be who I was the, the last two years and leading the league in scoring. So when I figured that out, then that's when our team took off to being much more competitive. But, you know, it was a struggle in the beginning to try to find line of when I pick my spots and how I get Yao involved. It was, it was, it was tough. Every athlete certainly has to face the fact that at some time it's going to end. And for you, it was on August 26, 2013. You officially announced your retirement from the NBA. Was that a hard thing for you to do? It wasn't hard because I think uh, my 11th year, um, it was a year we lost Yao. and, And we didn't have him in the playoffs. We played Utah. And every game for that, that playoff series. And I think we, we played six games. I had to get a shot in my knee and this was 2008 season. And in order for me to play, I had to get a shot in my knee. So I played all six games and we lost that series in six without Yao. Come back the next year. I thought, you know, in the off season, I'll go and get my knee cleaned out, be ready to come back next year. Oh, I'm extremely excited in the off season because we signed Ron Artest. I'm I'm over overwhelmed. Like this is the this is the time. This is our year. I, I got a lot more help. We can compete for a championship. Well, I start the season out. I'm not healthy. Um, I got to shut it down because I my my knee is just is done. I have microfracture surgery. So I stopped playing. Went on and got traded to New York. So I played four more years after that. Once I realized I wasn't going to be that same player again, mentally I was ejected from the game. So when I did retire in 2013, I was already, you know, planning on that anyway, 
even before that because I was with the Knicks and, you know, Detroit, Atlanta. That point, I was, like, mentally checked out. But I had to play for those teams because I wanted to see if I could fight back from that microfracture surgery and work my butt off to being an NBA player again. And I achieved that. And then once I completed those seasons, it was time to shut it down. You certainly did not stay retired from sports for a long period of time because in 2014 you confirmed that you were officially pursuing your dream of becoming a professional baseball player. Well, Michael did it, but how did you find the experience? <laughs> it was a it was a bucket list, you know. Like I said, baseball was my favorite sport. Started at the age of five. Even to this day, I still play baseball. Uh, fast pitch. I'm in a 40 and up league, so um, that's 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 my love. But I, I had to, you know, find some time to really not check that off of my bucket list, whether it was going to be while I was playing in my prime or after I was going to play minor league baseball, gave it a shot. It was hard as hell because I hadn't played since my sophomore year in high school. Uh, but I went out there, pitched a few games, enjoyed it. And that was that. Let's talk about what you've got on the table now. I was very interested when I saw the announcement of the one-on-one basketball because I think there's nothing better than to see two talented athletes be on the court playing against each other and watch the way they perform, the way they think, the way they execute. Tell me a little bit about what your thinking was in establishing this one-on-one basketball. So there's a a lot of reasons, uh, inspiration behind creating this league. Um, for starters, I have two sons of my own, 16 and 13, and I have an AAU program as well. And my sons are always asking me uh, about me playing one-on-one against, you know, some of their favorite NBA players and who will win. My AAU kids do the same, and they also they play one-on-one. But I, I, I thought the more the, the more intriguing thing with them is. These kids don't watch NBA games. They don't watch college basketball. Like, my sons have yet to sit down and watch a game with me. And they love to play basketball. But what they will watch is YouTube video highlights and watch these guys that play pickup ball on the blacktop that go from city to city. And, you know, four-on-four turns into one-on-one. And the energy that is created, you know, in these these parks around these kids that are traveling, playing pickup basketball was insane to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't know this existed, but this is what my kids gravitate towards. So that was inspirational. And then I know myself that there are some guys out here that you know, didn't get the opportunity to play pro basketball, whether it's overseas, whether it's uh, in the NBA. And, hell, they probably didn't get a chance to play college basketball because of their journey. They may have taken a, you know, a left turn when it was a teenager, didn't, you know, get those opportunities to, to do so. I'm providing a platform for those guys who still can play at a high level, um, who can who can – really compete and I, I think have a skill set for the audience to appreciate and, 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 and be able to 
um, to watch two guys be competitive uh, going at it. And I want to create stars. If you look at UFC, UFC fighting, their platform, I didn't know who these fighters were before they got on the UFC platform. UFC made stars out of these guys. One's basketball league is going to make stars out of these guys because of the stories that we can tell, um, the competitive, uh, you know, spirit that these guys going to bring because there are underground leagues all across America that no one knows about, but there are guys out here that have elite talent that needs to be on a, on a platform that I'm creating to make a name for themselves. And why not one-on-one basketball? It's pure essence, the true essence of basketball. You know, I love this concept, Tracy, and I'll tell you the reason why. I had a conversation with Al Adels once, and I asked him, why did some of the playground legends never be able to make it to the next level? And he said they couldn't play team-oriented basketball. You think about Helicopter Herman in, in New York and legends like that. This is going to give them their opportunity to show what they can do. That is 100% right. I've actually played with some guys throughout my career that was great one-on-one players, but in a team concept, they couldn't, you couldn't either run a play. They didn't know how to execute a play. They just didn't fit. The system didn't fit for them. Um, and it's just like, you know, with some NFL quarterbacks, you know, they, they play a one style in college, but then when they get to the pros, it, this was like, you know, years ago when some of the, the, the black quarterbacks used to be, you know, uh, come from the college level of having a great collegiate career, but then they go to the in, the NFL and what their talent displays is, is not conducive to how the coach wants them to play. And it just doesn't fit. It didn't work out. Um, it's the, the same with these guys. You know, some of these guys just are not, built for team basketball. They're one-on-one players, and this is the perfect platform for these guys. And, and there are guys that are out here that can compete and beat some of the elite NBA players in a game of one-on-one basketball. I hope everybody will look on this uh, for this because it's an outstanding competition, and I think people will enjoy it. Tracy, I have thoroughly enjoyed this hour talking about your life, about your career, about your grandmother and your mother as well. You are welcome here anytime on Sports Byline. Please come back and join me again. Yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity and your platform. Appreciate you. Tracy McGrady, again, guard forward in the NBA for 15 seasons. Many of his contemporaries, including Paul Pierce, have called him one of the most difficult players that they ever had to guard. And his playing style has been compared to George Gervin's because both of the players made uh, scoring appear really very easy with their smooth approach to the game. And also, he was once described as he glided through the lane, crouched into traffic, and accelerated suddenly and almost violently through a forest of slower-moving forms and to the rim. We talk basketball this hour with Tracy McGrady. We continue across the country and around the world. Good to have you with us on America's Sports Talk Show.